Welcome to Trinity Church. My name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors. And um, before we even get started with the sermon, uh, maybe if you're watching this online, you're wondering if I'm in Africa or if I go a little farther back, it might look like I got some new hair. Uh, but uh, we had a phenomenal uh, VBS week. All the glory to God for what he did with a church of our size and uh, bringing the kids he brought. And we'll see as you know, God's the one who gets the results. We'll see what, what God does. And um, it's very exciting for us. Uh, we've been in the Sermon on the Mount for a few months now. And today we finally get to the end of the body of the sermon. And we get to launch into the conclusion. Technically, the conclusion isn't that long. But as good Baptists, we're going to spend a few weeks uh, working our way uh, through this. It's uh, uh, filled with a lot of uh, very valuable truth for us. Today we're studying one of the most well-known, generally agreed upon ethical statements of Jesus, the golden rule. You were probably taught some form of this growing up, even if you didn't grow up in a religious household. I'm sure you've heard it at school, even if they weren't referring to the Bible. I'm sure you heard it. And I'm, I'm yet to find a person who disagrees with it, you know, thinks it's a bad ethical principle for us. Adam Lee, a Decalogue for the Modern World, says, do not do to others what you would not want them to do to you is the single greatest, simplest, and most important moral axiom humanity has ever invented, one which reappears in the writings of almost every culture and religion throughout history, the one we know as the golden rule. Moral directives do not need to be complex or obscure to be worthwhile, and in fact, it is precisely this rule's simplicity which makes it great. It is easy to come up with, easy to understand, and easy to apply, and these three things are hallmarks of a strong and healthy moral system. The idea behind it is readily graspable. Before performing an action which might harm another person, try imagine yourself in their position and consider whether you would want to be the recipient of that action. If you would not want to be in such a position, the other person probably would not either. And so you should not do it. It is the basic and fundamental human trait of empathy, the ability to vicariously experience how another is feeling that makes this possible. And it is a principle of empathy by which we should live our lives. Mary McLaughlin, Think Humanism, again, not a Christian, trying to live according to the golden rule means trying to empathize with other people, including those who may be very different from us. Empathy is at the root uh, is at the root of kindness, compassion, understanding, and respect. Qualities that we all appreciate being shown, whoever we are, wherever we, uh, whatever we think, and wherever we come from. And although it isn't possible to know what what it really feels like to be a different person or live in different circumstances and have different life experiences, it isn't difficult for most of us to imagine what would cause us suffering and to try to avoid causing suffering to others. For this reason, many people find the golden rules uh, do not treat people in a way 
uh, you would not wish to be treated yourself more pragmatic. And even the declaration toward a global ethic from the Parliament of World's Religions you know, proclaimed the golden rule as a common belief across religion, garnered signatures from, you go down the list, from uh, Christianity, Islam, Hinduism, uh, Judaism, Native American, Neo-Paganism, uh, Unitarian Universalist, Zoroastrian, all kinds. Everyone's cool with this idea. I mean, even some of the greatest uh, skeptics concerning the words of Jesus, even, even they would say, yeah, yeah, Jesus probably said this. It seems so harmless. But as we will work our way through the text today, uh, you, you've heard this a thousand times, but, but come to it afresh. Let, let's not neuter the, the words of Jesus. Uh, we're going to see today that this is something distinctly Christian. It, if this sermon could be preached in a uh, Jewish synagogue, if it could be preached in an Islamic temple, like I've not done my job. I've, I've preached a, a, a sermon, a moral, ethical sermon, but I haven't preached the words of Jesus. So hold me to that. And uh, let's uh, dig into this passage. If you uh, need a Bible, there, there's one in a seat back in front of you. And also, if you need a listening guide, lift your hand up. Don't be embarrassed. Come on, let's, let's get some. Ooh, Alex is more than happy to get you one from the back. Matthew 7, verses 12 through 14. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Let's pray. Father God, we are here because of your providential work. Uh, on our own, we would not seek you. We, we thank you so much that you went out and sought us and you, you went out and found us. We are eternally grateful to you for that. I pray as we listen to your words today, help us to hear them afresh and to be changed to look more like you through our time here today. We pray this in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. So verse 12 uh, starts off with a so or, or therefore, meaning that we, we need to understand how this connects to what uh, came before. Does it connect with the section we looked at last week about asking will be given to you? Absolutely. God is a, a generous father uh, to us, so this is our rightful response to who he is and what he does. But, but it does uh, more than that. It actually concludes the, the body of this sermon. Uh, again, very carefully summarizing uh, Jesus' sermon as Matthew crafts this part of his gospel. He doesn't want us to miss this highlight. 
And, and look back in uh, chapter 5, verse 17. Look, look how the body of this Sermon on the Mount began. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And, and then, then here's how it ends. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. That this command is as simple and practical as it gets. And we've been talking about a lot of simple and practical uh, things as we've worked our way through this uh, sermon. It, this, this can be taught to a four-year-old. It can be taught to a 94-year-old. It, it is a powerful summary of practicing love in interpersonal relationships. And we'll see as we observe the life of Jesus in this gospel that he lives this out perfectly. It is stated here in the positive, do to others what you would want them to do to you. But it's a negative is also applicable. We'll see a little later some of the specific about stating in the positive what that means for us. And it better fits the virtue Jesus is trying to form in his followers here. It's not about a list of things not to do. The, the negative is easier than the positive. It requires less thinking to, uh, to accomplish the negative and not do to others what you don't want them to do to you than to do the positive. And, and this is a virtue-based ethic in a world clamoring for a rules-based ethic. You remember the scribes and Pharisees in Jesus's day. They had a rule for everything. You want to know how to follow the Sabbath? Well, I mean, they had it laid out how many steps you could take and what qualifies and what does not qualify as a step. Jesus is not opposed to rules and commandments. I mean, we read in our scripture reading earlier from Leviticus, plenty of rules. If you open up the Old Testament, plenty of the and, and throughout the words of Jesus, you will find a plenty of them also. Look at the Old Testament, which Jesus fulfills. It is full of commandments. But instead, Jesus understands that no amount of rules, of which we have plenty, can produce the heart change that God desires. Jesus could continue to preach in this sermon for days, but no amount of time would allow him to parse out every way in which this greater righteousness should work its way out in his followers. Don't do this. Don't do this. But except in this circumstance, then you should do this. Don't do this. Except, etc. Instead, he's forming virtue in them. It is a vision of relating to one another in the way that God designed us from the beginning to relate. So whatever you wish others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. When I was struggling with how to make this into a point for a sermon, I'm just going to rip off the words of Jesus. There's no better way. I'm sure he's good with it. So do to others as you would have them do to you. Look at the, the relationship between actions and heart here, as we've seen come up time and time again in this Sermon on the Mount. 
Actions matter. It doesn't say just have good intentions. Tell someone you'll pray for kindness upon them. No, the tougher thing, do the kindness unto them. But there's no place here just for external performance. It it has to uh, come from the heart if you're considering others, the desires of others, above your own desires. This fights against our selfishness. We want others to act this way toward us, but when it's not convenient for us to act this way toward others, we're, shall we say, a little less enthusiastic. And as we've worked our way through the Sermon on the Mount, we've come back again and again to this internal versus external righteousness. Jesus' followers and that of the scribes and Pharisees. That they can look fairly similar on the outside. Were the scribes and Pharisees physically murdering anyone? Um, openly committing adultery. And should Jesus' followers be doing that? No, no, no neither, neither should be. But dramatically different inside. For an illustration, I thought of, you know what? Phones can look very similar on the outside. Now, before I show this, uh, let me highlight the vast resources of Trinity Church. I mean, one of these phones you can literally not find anywhere. But as Trinity Church, we can get our hands on things that are unacquirable. But you're looking at these two phones, from the outside, they look fairly similar. I mean, you might have a preference. You might, you know, one of these is a couple years, a few years older than the other. Um, Screen size a little different. You you know, one has a headphone jack. They both have USB-C. Very Similar phones. And I asked one of the leading tech experts of our day and age. Oh, you might have met him last week, my dad. He, and he, you know, he looked at it and you know what? He, he said, he was divided. And the leather back kind of sealed it for him. He was like, well, you know, if I were to take just based on external appearance, I'd probably take this one with uh, the leather back. You know, he mentioned putting some you know, rubbing some, you know, leather conditioner on it. I don't, I don't know how much that would help, but end of the day, very similar on the outside. But without getting into a ton of tech uh, specs, inside, these are radically different phones. One of these runs, uh, you know, the newest version of Android. One of these is a Windows phone. One of them turns on, one of them doesn't. I'll, I'll let you guess which one uh, that is. But the looks can be deceiving. You remember that the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees can look a whole lot like the righteousness Jesus is calling his followers to. However, the, the righteousness Jesus is calling his followers to is one that flows from a heart properly oriented to God. If it does not come from that, it is worthless in the sight of God. God takes no delight in it. People can look nice, kind, loving on the outside. They can look, quote-unquote, very Christian. But, but it does them no good if it doesn't come from a heart 
properly oriented toward God out of a love for Jesus. Jesus says that doing to others as you would have them do to you fulfills the law and the prophets. That's a very fitting summary of the Old Testament teaching concerning relating with one another. You know, technically, here he's talking about the loving uh, your neighbor part of uh, the Old Testament, the Old Testament law, which certainly can't be divorced from the loving God above all else apart. And this, for Matthew and for Jesus, this is not a nameless, faceless concept to throw out there, let's everyone go try to live this out. No, as we read through the rest of this gospel, we see that Jesus embodies this. Jesus heals. He heals some more people. He feeds 5,000. He comes to his disciples when they are afraid via walking on the water. He feeds 4,000 people. He describes himself when, when he talks about the shepherd who leaves the 99 sheep to find the one. He, he calls to the children to come to him. And, and this is capped off by him dying a death he did not deserve for a people who totally deserved such a death to reconcile those people to God. Look to Jesus. He is the ultimate demonstration of do to others as you would have them do to you. He is the ultimate fulfillment of this as he's come to fulfill the law and the prophets. But, so first and foremost, be, be captivated by him as we look at this principle and we see it worked its way out in his life through the rest of this gospel. But, but what, what does this mean uh, practically uh, for us? Remember, this is in the context of Jesus' preaching directed toward his followers. Earlier in the sermon, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. I say this because it means the primary and most important context for this to be worked out in is the church. Are we treating each other the way we would want to be treated? Does this principle work its way out at work, at the grocery store, etc.? Absolutely. But, but let me explain why it first and foremost needs to be applied within the context of the church community. Because the, the church is meant to be a place where you know others and are known. Christianity is a community affair, not an independent study uh, project. At its core, we're God's family. So t- take, a dri- I'm driving on the road, pull up to red light next to uh, a green Honda Civic. Well, well, how can I apply that toward the driver in this car? Well, it's mostly the negative. Like, what would, if I don't want it to be done to me, I shouldn't do it to him. So probably shouldn't try to cut him off. Probably shouldn't get out of my car and slash his tires. There's all kinds of good options for, even if he has his music really loud should I try to like 
up it and see if I can get my music louder and make his, you know, competition. Well, maybe he likes that, but probably, probably not. But how could I apply the positive of, you know, do to others as you would want them to do to you in, in that type of situation? Well, I mean, there's not too many options that aren't really creepy. You know, maybe he's, you know, smoking a cigarette out the window and I suppose I could roll down my window and if I had a pack of cigarettes, I could try to like throw them over. But, but you know, I'm not sure that would really communicate the right thing. I, I'm pretty sure he would see that as, as creepy. I mean, maybe his car is a little dirty. But, but does that really mean I should follow him to wherever he's going to wash his car? Also, you know, borderline creepy there. And honestly, I don't have a clue what's going on in that guy's life. Is, is thing, are things going really well? Has he just got a promotion at work? Or, or did he have a family member? Just I, I don't know anything about, you know, I don't know if he's... Uh, a Christian, hates Christianity, if he has a family, I, I know very little. I mean, I guess he could have those little stick figures on the back of his car and I could figure out if he has family and a dog or something like that, maybe. But it's a whole lot different when we think about the church. where Though I don't have a clue what's going on in that guy's personal life, as uh, God's family, as covenant community, we better know what's going on in e- each other's life as, as we try to do life together, as we gather regularly as a church and then in uh, community groups and go out to eat and do all kinds of uh, things together. You see, it's a whole lot easier to do those general things of not cutting, not cutting that guy off than to do the specific things for people we know very well. And unlike other areas of life, Jesus specifically designed the, the church to be a place where you can't get away from people that uh, irk you, people that you don't like. You know, I understand our 21st century culture is, is different, much more transient than that of Jesus' day, but the point remains. If you don't like people at work, you can try to get to a different department, you can get a different job, you, you can try to get them fired, you can do all kinds of things. If you don't like your neighbors, well, you, you don't, aren't required to interact with them all that much, and you could move if you so desire. And besides, a lot of your time is, is spent with you know, people you get to choose. You get to choose who you go out to eat with, you know, what groups you're involved with, who you hang out with. And, and typically, people choose people who look like them, act like them, think like them. And if you don't like a certain group of people, well, you just you don't have to invite them out to eat. You don't have to go grab a drink with that person. But except that's not the way God designed the, the church to work. And Jesus never designed it so that if you don't like, you know, one church, there's another church uh, to 
go to. That just wasn't the case in the New Testament. Basically, you need to work out your issues in the church and and not move on, not part ways. The church is not designed to attract more people that look like me, to which everyone can say amen. (laughs) It's not designed to attract more people that necessarily look like you and have a similar, that we all have a similar background, similar likes and dislikes. The church is for all who God calls in faith, different ethnicities, different backgrounds, different socioeconomic classes, different political views, different personalities. And the point isn't to get rid of the people who we don't like so that we can all just get along. The point is to look more like what we'll see in Revelation where around uh, the throne, people of every tribe, tongue, race, worshiping Jesus. And that's the primary context for applying this command to do to others as you would wish them to do to you. Well, let's, let's think about that this week. I talk about it in community group. How, how can we apply this golden rule in the context of our church community? And, and then, then we can talk about, from there, how, how th- this can look attractively different to a world that may affirm this principle, but certainly not in, in the way that we do. And, and if you can't already, you're going to see that the, though a simple principle, this is not all that easy to live out. Well, which leads to the next point, verses 13 through 14. Living this ethic is difficult and has eternal ramifications. I, I say this ethic because I, I don't want you to think or don't mean that verses 13 and 14 refer solely to verse 12. But as much as verse 12, you know, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. But for as much as that is a summary of the entire body of this sermon, which it is, Verses 13 and 14 launch into this conclusion of the sermon, driving home its thrust with stark portrayals of its urgency. Once more, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Jesus gives a contrast of two ways. This permeates the entire conclusion of this sermon. And we'll be driving that home in the next uh, few weeks. One way uh, of living in this world is described as a narrow gate, a difficult path. The other way of living in this world has a broad gate, an easy path. And... uh, one question as you come to interpretation is it does this mean a way that leads to a gate or a gate that leads to a way? Different options there. I believe it's uh, best interpreted as uh, as two different I- sets of images which make the same point. You know, narrow gate versus wide gate, difficult path versus easy path, bringing home the the same main point. So this, this wide gate, easy path. Obviously, this would have brought much imagery to the minds 
of the original readers, hearers. They, they knew this firsthand. A wide gate is easy to get in and out, often uh, suggests a desirable location, a large city. A main roadway can't be easily missed and is um, much easier to travel. Remember, this is long before interstates uh, were invented. A, um, we don't get this in our culture because it's like, well, I could take the interstate. It's a little faster, but, you know, I've got a highway that's, it is a highway, you know, that might wind and curve a little bit, but is it? difficult to drive on? Is it, you know, poorly marked? Well, well, hopefully not. Most of our highways around uh, could be, you know, newly paved. We kind of know where they're going. You don't get lost too often, unless that's just uh, who who you are. And the Greek here is simply enter it. You simply enter this uh, gate, this way. Uh, The overriding idea here is ease. Think of this as the default gate, the default path. You know, many go this way. It's not so much a comment on the quantitative difference between the two different gates, the two different paths. That The main emphasis here, again, is its ease. You would expect the vast majority to flock to the wide gate, the desirable location, the easy path for travel in a day and age where Travel could be a life and death uh, situation. And and this is not a new concept in the sermon. Uh, This is the gate and path of the scribes and Pharisees. This is external righteousness that can be achieved by just putting one's mind toward following some rules. Do not steal. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. But then look at the narrow gate, the difficult path. It is just the opposite requires patience, is tough to to enter this gate, not a place with a huge attraction. Narrow path is not easy to go down. Contrast here uh, with main emphasis in its difficulty. Uh, This gate has to be found in contrast to the ease of just entering the, the wide gate path. But, but not to be mistaken here with a call to externalism, to just opt for the tougher thing to do over the easy route, the challenge over the guaranteed victory. This is a call for one's whole person, whole life, requiring one's devotion, loyalty. It, it can't be accomplished just by external action, but needs to be rooted in a heart oriented to God and his kingdom righteousness. And what, what's at stake? Is it just a matter of preference? You know, what gate would you prefer? Two different paths. Which one fits your fancy? And honestly, that's the way most people uh, in our day and age like to think of it, that there's many different paths. Well, we're going to Florida in a few weeks, and there, there's many different routes we could take, depending on you know, do we want to get there as fast as possible? Do we want to, you know, stop and see uh, the grandparents? Do we, do we want a scenic route? And, and you wouldn't uh, debate any of those options. Are, 
you know, it's all based on, you know, preference, which you value more. Will there probably be screaming kids? I'm sure there will be, whichever of those paths uh, we choose. And that's the common view of spirituality in our day and age, that there's many different routes, but they're all leading to the same place. But, but that is, is dead wrong. Let's stop right here. How do you view the Christian life? Did you see it as the narrow gate, the difficult path? Or have you kind of forgotten about that and expecting it to be a little closer to the wide gate, the easy route. It, it's all about expectations. Um, I, I learned this uh, at uh, the hotel I work at. When I first got there, there were a lot of people who thought the hotel was different than it was. They, they thought it was different than what they had signed up for. So, so what did I start doing? Well, in interviews, I started telling people, about what was actually going to happen. I'd start telling them about, hey, you're going to have a line of people looking to check in. You just wait till they come down for breakfast. You'll never knew, know that so many people could be crammed into a room. And then there's going to be some disgusting rooms uh, to clean. And looking for people who were you know, embracing that challenge. That's what they were looking for. And, and though they may not be super thrilled when it does happen it's it's certainly if they came in with those ex- expectations of the difficulty they shouldn't be you know surprised when what they signed up for happens and likewise how are you thinking about the christian life uh, you know let this be a reminder that the gate is narrow the way is tough that this shouldn't lead to pride in thinking that you know, look how, how I'm rocking the, the Christian life. And that it should lead to faith in Jesus in the toughest times. It, it should remind us that when life is tough, when we're going through much difficulty, it's not a sign that we're doing it all wrong, but uh, that we signed up for following a Messiah who's lifting up. What was that? His lifting up was his crucifixion. Jesus promised inexplicable joy in the midst of suffering, but he didn't promise that all the suffering in this life will go away. Jesus promises a relationship with him and his people, but he doesn't promise that one won't lose friends, one won't lose family for his name's sake. Jesus promises his provision, but remember, we're following a guy who spent most of his life, uh, his ministry, homeless. This passage, you know, says that, you know, one gate path leads to life. One gate path leads to destruction. Context indicates this isn't just, you know, physical life, physical death. It's much greater than that. It's eternal life, eternal destruction. That's what is at stake with Jesus' ethic of righteousness. And the obvious question here is, so who gets life and who gets destruction? Because I want one and not the other. Life here is the person who does to others like what he or she would uh, like others to do to him or her. 
the person who cultivates internal righteousness that works its way out, the person who values Jesus and his kingdom first. And this destruction, well, Jesus' point here wasn't primarily to reinforce the, the people his audience already knew what were getting this result were destined for hell. You, you know, the really bad people. The, there are people on this path to destruction who don't look like they're on that path. They, in, in Matthew's gospel here, they are religious like the scribes and Pharisees. They have knowledge of the scripture like the scribes and the Pharisees. They pray, they fast, they follow the laws but they're headed toward destruction. Why? Because they have an external righteousness that is a show for others, as we've seen. They don't have a heart uh, properly oriented toward God. It doesn't, uh, their actions don't flow from the proper motivation. They are ultimately serving themselves in the name of serving God, in the name of serving others. And this warning is designed to bite. And you know what? It's the perfect warning for people like us who are gathered here. People who might be, you know, listening online. Why? Well, if you're here, you're listening to this, you're probably at least somewhat religious. You're probably at least intrigued by the Bible. But examine yourself that you don't have the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. You see, you, you could fool me. As elders, when we, we talked about you know, church membership and stuff like that, we happily admit that we can be fooled. You, you, you can say a lot of very nice things, sound a lot like the scribes and Pharisees, and you can trick us, but at the end of the day, the f- judge on the final day isn't fooled. And your, your end is destruction. And if, if, that, if you're in that boat today, repent of your show of righteousness. Come to Jesus valuing him above all else. And maybe if you're in the other boat and you really are seeking Jesus' kingdom righteousness. You know, don't think this uh, passage has no bearing uh, on your life and that it's just for the, the bad people, the people out there. You know, recognize the temptation that you and I face to be a little bit more like the scribes and Pharisees than we, we often care to admit. And, and to set aside a little bit of Jesus' kingdom ethic. The honor of other people sounds awfully nice. A little bit more publicity of my righteousness sounds like a good motivation tool. But, but hear this warning. Understand the final end of these different gates, different paths. And find the narrow gate. Follow the difficult path. And that, uh, that leads us uh, to communion as we remember that we haven't always kept 
the, the golden rule. We haven't always pursued the righteousness that pleases God. We, we've chased after what God hates. And Jesus came running after us and called us to himself, if you are a Christian here today. We, we celebrate that we have not always perfectly kept the golden rule. But the good news is that Jesus did. He perfectly obeyed the Father. He always chose the glory of God's kingdom and the good of others over his own comfort. He did what we could not and did not. So, so uh, pray with me and, and then let's uh, prepare uh, to take communion together. Father God, I pray that you'd impress upon us the importance of, of living out this uh, golden rule, but help us not to pursue external righteousness, righteousness like that of the, the scribes and the Pharisees.